Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And my guest on the podcast this week is none other than Jack Haig. Now, what can I tell you about Jack? Well, he's an Australian pro riding with Team Bahrain Victorious, but he's currently injured. Now, he had a pretty bad break in his wrist in the Tour de France this year, and we talk all about the injury and how his sister-in-law ended up in the operating theatre. He's at a crucial moment in his recovery as he hopes to ride outdoors again very soon. And I was interested to know how it felt to watch the Vuelta on telly, considering this time last year, he was right at the sharp end of the race and stepped onto the GC podium for the first time ever at a Grand Tour. All that and loads more, including how many words he can spell using the letters of his hometown of Bendigo within 30 seconds. So grab a hammock, kick off your sandals, sip on an ice beverage and relax, because this is the Jack Habe. Habe? <laughs> Habe! Okay, well it's the Jack Habe episode. Oh, so grab a hammock, kick off your sandals, sip on an ice beverage and relax, because this is the Jack Habe episode. Podcast. Jack Haig grew up in Australia, where he began his cycling career as a mountain biker. His path from there to the third step of the 2021 Vuelta is both fascinating and inspirational. Having endured more than his fair share of bad luck at the past two Tour de France he's ridden, I spoke to Jack about recovery, consistency and bounce back ability. Look it up, it is a actual word, apparently. His enthusiasm and commitment to succeed are a lot stronger than his knowledge of Bendigo, though. But somehow, which is a complete and utter paradox, he still manages to get 150% in the hometown quiz. Check it out. Jack Haig, thank you very much for joining me on Matt Stevens' Unplugged, mate. Thanks for having me, mate. Thank you. Well, it's just it's, it's a pleasure, mate. Um, can you describe, um, first off, first and foremost, um, on our pod, the way we kick things off is for our guest to describe exactly where they are, not just in the world, but also the room that you're in, um, so we can get a nice, um, just scene setter, really. So where are you in the world, mate? And what can you see immediately around you? All right. I'm in my home in Andorra. It's a place I've called home now for almost almost seven years, I guess, six and a half years. And then I'm sitting at the dining room table, I have the sliding window, the sliding door open to my left and I see the uh, chairlift for the ski resort and in the summer it's a mountain bike resort going at the moment. Um, It's a new house so I see boxes and some of my son's uh, toys. Very nice. Um, Can you see, how how old is your son if you don't mind me asking? Uh, About one and a half. Oh, so there's no Lego just yet? Oh, there's like the really big Legos, not the, oh. like the little tiny Legos. He's got like a he's got a tiny kitchen, uh, play kitchen that he likes. Ah, right, because the, the big Lego is um, Duplo, isn't it? I have no idea, but it sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, du- Duplo is is like the Lego with the slightly bigger, uh, the little bigger dots. So it's like it's uh, easier for smaller. A hands to get a grip of um yeah so that that could be duplo leg I've, ne- I've never heard an australian called lego legos so when, when i when i was doing my interview um with rowan dennis a while ago he called it lego but you call it legos that's interesting but isn't just like the multiple of a lego legos 
or am yeah, I completely wrong there? No, you're not. You're not wrong because the, the Americans call the plural of Legos Lego, but then they just call Lego Legos anyway. So the plural is the singular. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, you, you're not only a pretty face there, Matt. You're also an English teacher. Well, there you go. I mean, I mean, there's nothing. The thing is, there's no wrong and right here, and it's, it's clearly a regional issue. Uh, well, not an issue, just a fact. Uh, but uh, interesting, that's a fair. Uh, no, I'll write that down. First for the pod, Jack Haig using the word Legos for an Australian. Um, yeah, when we do like an almanac in a couple of years' time. Maybe when we, I think maybe the 100th podcast will draw out some really funky facts. Um, no, I'm right. shaking his head at the moment. Um, <laughs> right, okay. Um, Jack, how's your injury, mate? Obviously, you, you crashed out of the tour. Almost it seemed like an eternity ago now because we're – you know, nearly halfway through the Vuelta. But how's re- the recovery going, mate? It's been pretty slow, but I actually have my final appointment with my surgeon tomorrow. And hopefully he'll give me the okay to ride my bike outside again. Because the main problem was I not only broke three bones in my wrist, the one that probably most people know of is the scaphoid. So I yeah. broke my scaphoid clean in half. Wow. And that required a screw. And then I also broke the end of the radius, which is like the, one of the bones in your forearm. And then I broke the bone next to the scaphoid called the lunate bone. And nice. all of those together, it probably wouldn't have been so bad because bone's pretty easy to fix. And you put a screw in the scaphoid and it's really stable and you can more or less start training again pretty quickly. Yeah. The problem I had is there's quite an important ligament that runs between the scaphoid and the lunate bone. And I basically tore his ligament in half. Whoa, flip it. Well, that sounds like a super complicated yeah. set of breaks, mate. I mean, I'm so, so sorry. I didn't, I honestly didn't realize that the extent of it, I knew it was a serious one. But uh, so you still haven't been able to ride outside. So you just home trainer all the time. Yeah. So basically, what happened was I, yeah, crashed in the tour, went to the hospital uh, during the race, had it all checked out, flew back to, Andorra and there's a really good hand surgeon in Barcelona and he does a lot of work with the MotoGP and superbike athletes because they often have problems with their wrists and uh, I showed him the x-rays and yeah. initially no one really thought it was too bad and he said, ah, look, come down tomorrow and I just wanted to do a checkup. Checked up and he's like, oh, I'm pretty sure you've broken a ligament and that meant that I needed to have a pretty uh, long surgery where they need to take out all the swelling inside my wrist joint because of the trauma that was there. There was a lot of fluid retention in there. And then um, I had seven small puncture holes in my wrist where they need to insert some cameras to look around. Wow. Then uh, the screw through the scaphoid. And I actually had, which was the most creepy part, was I had three wires that went through from the outside to the inside of my wrist and actually stuck out of my skin for like two weeks. And oh, yeah, yeah, it was pretty intense actually. Uh, and basically these wires pinned together the scaphoid bone and the lunate bone so that I couldn't move it so that it gave the ligament time to kind of heal and attach itself. Right, right. Because it are you the sort of... Clearly, you've got to, you obviously know exactly what's going on in your wrist. I mean, I know when I've had injuries in the past, and I think when anybody gets an injury or an illness, depending on their their personality, they quite often end up learning a lot about it. Have you have you have you ended up doing that? Have you ended up becoming a little bit of an expert um, about uh, that particular part of your body? It sounds like you have because you've clearly got a grasp of what's going on. 
Yeah, I, uh, like like you said, and especially I think when you're talking to professional athletes, we're yep. so motivated to learn what's wrong so that we, then we can fix it as fast as possible. Sure. And one of the kind of strange coincidences is my sister-in-law is actually studying or doing a master's in physiotherapy, specializing in uh, wrists and hands. Right. And she actually just started doing placement with the surgeon that did my surgery and she was in the theater during my uh, surgery. So she actually took videos and photos of the whole surgery process. Wow. And I didn't really want to see it straight away when I finished the surgery because it was like a pretty intense surgery and yeah, like having wires sticking out of your wrist and stuff like this is pretty, pretty full on. But then like after a week or two, I was like, oh, I want to have a look at the, the surgery and like some of the video and everything like this. So it was actually pretty cool to see it. Wow. That is, uh, yeah. Um, what, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, what, what, a sm- what a small world as well. That is absolutely amazing, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah. that, that you're able to get access to that. And also you got a, a close relative um, um, doing that as well. That's that's bizarre. I mean, so what's the prognosis so far? I mean, when do you think you're going to be out on, on the bike and, and looking at the season? Is, is the season wiped out now, Jack, do you think? Or do you think there's any hope you might be competitive at all? There's a small chance that I can maybe race. The problem is that we're running out of race days, basically. Yeah. So there's a small chance I can maybe race. I think my team does Piemonte and then Lombardia. Okay. But the problem is, so hopefully tomorrow I have the appointment with the surgeon. He gives me the okay to ride the bike and then I can probably ride the bike on the weekend. But the problem is that we don't know how the wrist will react to the vibration and potential bumps on the yeah. road outside yeah. and whether I'll get some swelling or whether I'll get some pain or so if everything went well, maybe those two one day races at the end of the season, but then there's also the small risk that if I crash again, it's not a hundred percent healed. And then I'd have to go back through this whole process again, basically. Yeah. So then yeah. it's trying to balance the risk of that with whatever the reward might be if I can race. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit complicated. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that's one of the things, isn't it? When, uh, I mean, this, this, this injury um, has sounded particularly complicated. You want to clearly get back to racing and you don't want to take any risks, but also you do want to start riding on the road and building up again. And um, I guess everybody in, in these in these sorts of situations, there are loads of cyclists. It's just the very nature of professional cycling. Um, every now and again, you're going to have an off, and every now and again, it's going to be a pretty serious one. But how have you got your head around that, mate? Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty. Are you somebody who's quite pragmatic, or is it, has it been quite difficult for you? Um, obviously, clearly, you, you want to race your bike. That's what you do for a living. But how have you how have you coped with it so far? <laughs> so, unfortunately, I went through this process last year. Uh, of course, I, at the tour, at the tour again, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. So last year I crashed, uh, stayed through the tour and I broke my collarbone. Yep. And basically since mm, I've known my wife, which is uh, six years, since uh, before last year when I crashed the tour, I don't think she'd ever seen me or need to change a dressing from a wound or something that I had from a crash in right. the five years before last year. And then I crashed last year and the collarbone was also not a very simple collarbone uh, fracture. I basically shattered my collarbone into a million pieces and I actually have part of another person's bone in my collarbone to be able to put it back together because wow. was Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, which was a strange conversation because I had the surgery in Andorra and the surgeon only spoke uh, Spanish and I understand quite a bit, but 
when he was trying to explain to me that he took a piece of bone from uh, the bone bank. Okay. I had a very hard time understanding what, how or what a bone bank was and why I had a cadaver's bone in my body. And then my wife translated okay. it for me and I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, anyway. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I kind of went through all that process last year. And at the start, uh, when I crashed initially, I thought, oh, maybe we can do the same thing, recover quite fast, come back and try and do the welter. So it was a bit annoying or frustrating when I found out that the injury is much more serious than I thought and was going to take longer. So it's hard to deal with, but luckily I wasn't in very much pain after I had the surgery. It was just that I couldn't really use my hand. Uh, Whereas last year with my collarbone, I had much more pain, but the recovery process was much faster. Right. Um, Right. So I've been able to do a lot of normal things. It's just that riding the bike and the position of the wrist on the bike is one of the worst positions to have the wrist in for my injury. Yep. So I can do 70, 80% of normal life things, but to ride the bike is actually a little bit painful. So, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been difficult. That's for sure. Because like you said, as athletes, we always want to get back as fast as possible and generally... 90% of our life, if not 100% of our life, revolves around our sport and training and trying to progress and trying to do well. So when you get a setback where you can't really do that for such a long period of time, it can be difficult. I mean, clearly, just going back on, if we get rewind to last year, I mean, um, whatever happens this year will happen, you know. Um, yeah. And, and I wish you all the very best with that. And, uh, and hopefully, I'll, I'll be, well, I'll be on site for Piemonte and Il Lombardia. So fingers crossed, mate, I can... Uh, I can commentate on your, your your comeback, or at least your return to competition. I think it's realistic, isn't it? Um, yeah. But um, but going back to your injury last year, you got through, focused on the Vuelta. We're we're midway through the Vuelta uh, right now, and you ended up on the podium. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what a turnaround! I mean, did you? <laughs> I mean, it obviously it was your first ever Grand Tour podium. I mean, that's a, a career defining ride by anybody's standards. Um, how did you, going into that race off the back of being injured, um, was it a different sort of approach? Did you hit that Vuelta with a lot of ambition? I, I know you were, it was riding for, you were riding for the team really, but what, um, physically and mentally head, hitting into that Vuelta off the back of your injury, where were you? And did you imagine that you'd be able to ride the way you did? Um, well, I came out of the tour and when I was at the tour, I think I was probably in some of the best shape that I've ever had in yep. my career and I worked really hard. I had a really good season up until the tour as well with the lead up races that had all gone quite well. And when I crashed, I knew that if the recovery went uh, smoothly, I'd probably be able to carry quite a lot of that form into the welter. Sure. I, there's, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty there with how the body reacts and responds and um, the energy required to heal a bone and to heal your body's not, uh, small, so that can yeah. take away from your cycling fitness. But maybe I went into the race sort of quietly confident, but I didn't really want to say anything, and I was more than happy to go there to work for Mikel Lander. Yeah. But I kind of knew in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I finished the tour in a really good, like I crashed out of the tour in a really good condition. I worked super, super hard with the recovery process, and I tried to make sure that I – I uh, didn't really lose too much fitness and that I did all the rehabilitation really well. And yeah, I was kind of hoping something might happen, but I knew that it was maybe a little bit unrealistic to think that I could really actually do well. Yep. 
but no, and you yeah, and but but somehow you you did it, didn't you? I mean, like I say, you you had you had an amazing start to the tour, top ten on the opening two stages, and then no racing and, until the Vuelta. So obviously, um, you you hit you did manage to carry through that consistency, didn't you? Somehow. Yeah, I guess as that word that you just said then was probably one of the philosophies that I live a lot of my life with, which is just consistency. And yeah. but if you just keep showing up to do something as long as you, you don't need to do it the best every single time, but as long as you just keep showing up and doing it, it'll be there. And it's the same with a lot of things, but it's also something that I uh, tell myself a lot with cycling and with training and with racing. And this is if you just keep getting out the door and keep riding the bike, it doesn't really matter how that training session went as long as you just consistently keep doing that. It's uh, it's clearly, I mean, you're obviously a rider that's been, that's getting better and better. When, and when you look at your transition through through the pro ranks, every year there's been this really nice, gentle, incre- incremental increase in, in your shape and your ability to perform. It's been quite a gradual one. You see some riders come into the game and it's stratospheric. They, they hit the ground running. Not to say that you didn't hit the ground running, but yours has been a really steady build over the last few years, hasn't it? Yeah, I think uh, a big catalyst that helped change my career was when I changed teams. Yeah. And um, I think it's good during a cyclist career that you do change teams every now and then, maybe not too much, but just to get that change and to have a new environment and new people and new motivations. And um, that was something that I think helped me a lot take that progression in my cycling, um, just to get new opportunities to have new faces around me and new ideas and sort of to be able to recreate who I am with inside a team. Cause when you sure. maybe turn professional in a team, a lot of the people in that team might still see you as that neo pro person that joined the team that was really green and didn't really know what they were doing. But if you change teams, you have a whole new opportunity to try and rebuild yourself into a different person or a different way that people look at you. That's really, really interesting because you spent, obviously, you started off with uh, Avanti. Well, before that, you're with, I'm, I'm going to, it's, it's a cracking name for a team, isn't it? Juan Salmon <laughs> Genesis Wealth Advisors, powered by uh, Pratis. I, I, I love long team names and I love powered by team names. What actually, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a cracking name. Um, did yeah. you ever use an acronym instead of the, the full name? <laughs> Just uh, Huan Genesis, I think, was the, the the shortened version of this. <laughs> yeah, it, that, a lot a lot easier. Then to Avanti, yeah. then of course your your home for the best part of five or six years, Orica uh, and, yeah. and and Mitchelton Scott. Clearly, a team that you're happy with. But that's really interesting. I never really heard. I've heard people talk about, and it's the stock interview phrase, you know, wanted to change a scene, change of environment. But it's interesting that you said that they, they perceive you in a different way. And I guess that makes a lot of sense because the rider that they sign and you, you're through, you're with Bahrain through to 2023 and you've had some of your biggest rides with them. Um, you are going to be perceived as a different rider, but I've never yeah. heard it explained like that. So do, do you think, um, it wasn't that I guess you're unhappy at Mitchelton Scott, it's just that you felt that you needed a change and it's really worked for you. Is that, is that, is that correct? hundred percent. The time yeah. that I spent at Bike Exchange, Bridgeton, the Scott, Green Edge, whatever you want to call it, I really enjoyed. And yeah. I think it was one of the best places that I could turn professional with being an Australian team. It made it quite easy for me to transition into professional cycling. Um, then the team obviously went through a quite difficult period, like a lot of teams in the COVID time when yeah. there was the... Uh, talk of change of sponsors there was uh the manuela foundation thing going on and 
I yeah. also just was looking for a change, not because sure. that I was unhappy with the team, but just that I thought it was the right time in my career to look for something different. Yeah. And, um, and clearly, I mean, just to explain what it's like being in the team. It's a team that, um, I mean, we, we recently interviewed Fred Wright, who's uh, had a sensational year. Well, he's a lovely, lovely mm-hmm. lad, isn't he? Um, for Bahrain. Well, what, what's, the, what's the vibe on the team like uh, fr- from within? Uh, I, I, get, I know that the team, let's be really cards on the table. There's been a lot of problems over the last year or so, hasn't there? Um, which I know are being, are, being, are being looked at. But, and that must be frustrating from one point of view. But, but clearly, from a racing perspective, um, you're very happy and have had your best results there. So what's the, what's the vibe on the team like and, and what sets it apart for you? It's very different to Green Edge. And I think, the, to be 100% honest, the first three, four months in the team last year were quite difficult because also the team went through quite a big change at the end of two years ago and the start of last year where the team was uh, McLaren, Bahrain or Bahrain McLaren. Rod yeah. Ellingworth was in the team and Rod was actually the person that signed me to the team. So. Yeah. When I signed for the team, I was signing with Rod Ellingworth, uh, more of an Anglo-Saxon team with McLaren as a sponsor. And then when I actually arrived at the team, Rod was no longer there and McLaren was no longer there. Yeah. So it was quite a different team to what I signed for, which was frustrating at the beginning. Yeah. But I've really started to find my place in the team and actually enjoy it. It is a very yeah. different environment to Green Edge because... That's very Australian. There was a lot of Australian staff, a lot of Spanish uh, staff there as well, and Italian. Whereas in Bahrain, there's a lot of um, Slovenian, Croatian staff there, and the service courses in Slovenia. Um, so there's some cultural differences there, which I really like now. But at the start, it was a bit hard to get used to. Yeah. But I really enjoy my time there now. It's maybe less joking and less uh not fun but the environment's a little bit more professional maybe sure uh where like it it is a job and at the end of the day we are professional cyclists and this is our job and our work is to try and do as best we can and get results for the team yeah uh so yeah it's different but i enjoy it yeah i mean i think that's that's a quite an honest way of putting it isn't it with with oracle clearly or green edge you know clearly an Australian team through and through. So the culture is going to be Australian. But when you look at the uh, the changes, you look at Bahrain as a sponsor, obviously it's a country, and then you've got you know, this, 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 oh, this Slovenia. And you're not being attacked, are you? This could be the first ever uh, podcast where we've had a guest literally attacked during a podcast. No, are you okay, Jack? I am, but my dog, my dog is uh, freaking out because we've got some coming into the house. Just, if, if you want to go and sort that out, we'll we'll play some lift music if you need to. <laughs> no, we, we should be all right now. He might just be a little bit in the background. All right, mate. Sorry, um, that's absolutely, so I, I became that. really worried then. I thought there was going to be like a health and safety alert. Um, <laughs> but no, we're all good as long as you're okay. No, yeah. it is interesting that the culture of different teams and speaking to multiple riders over the years, uh, you do talk about the team's culture. But it's got, it must be almost like a and it sounds quite harsh, like a Frankenstein culture where there's just so many different, I'm just scrolling through the amount of different na- nations of riders that are in this squad. And there's no real consistency. It's literally, it's a multinational team, isn't it? It really is by, by definition, literally. Um, I, I think maybe the, the, the most, maybe you've got the most Italian riders, perhaps maybe three or four span. It's just a real mix, isn't it? And then you've got differing cultures, the team owners, and then the team, the people who run the team. So you are going to get something that maybe is slightly inconsistent, but the consistent thing about the team is 
the fact that you're all professional cyclists and you've got a tr- you've got one aim and it's to win bike races and and this year over the last couple of years, you won some very very big bike races. Yeah, no, you're incredibly right there. That the team's really international. Like we have uh, Yuki, the Japanese rider. We have Taiwanese rider. We have riders from all over Europe. Um, but I think the one thing that you mentioned there is that we're all professional athletes and yeah. the team's goal is to win bike races and sure. that's the one thing that they uh invest a lot in so we have a lot of really good altitude training camps a lot of our equipment is really good and i think when you add up all these things of good equipment good training philosophies good riders we maybe don't have the world's best riders but when you have all these things together it can result in some really big results. And I think the team's done amazing over the last two years or a year and a half, two years. Yeah, no, 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 it certainly has. It's, it certainly has. Well, we're just going back to the situation that we're, we're now in terms of the season. We're, we're midway through the Vuelta. Um, you're not racing. You're not even running out on the road. Are you able to sit and watch the Vuelta, mate? Or is it too frustrating? <laughs> uh, are you sitting there interested and thinking, okay, I can't be there, but I'm going to watch it? Or does it uh, frustrate, anger you that you can't be there? I'd imagine it's somewhere between the two. So have you been watching the Vuelta? I've watched a little bit of it, but right. it has it has been a bit hard to, to see it uh, on TV and to not even be able to be outside riding the bike, let alone racing it. Sure. So it's... Yeah, it's a difficult time because obviously, yeah, like we mentioned before that as athletes, we, we want to compete. We want to, it's what we live for. So to see the one race that I've done really well in and I was going to race again this year and I can't even ride outside, it's pretty hard. Yeah. And just and just a quick, before, before we move away from the Vuelta, what are your thoughts on um, on on the on an Aussie that's doing amazingly, Jay Vine, and some of the performances he's, he's put out? What do, you, do you know Jay very well? Yeah, so I don't know him super well, but he lives in Andorra, not too far away from where I am. So I see him out training and say hello to him and super nice guy. And I was really happy to see him get those two stage wins. And the performances, he's always been super strong like yeah he's done some of the fastest climbing times at some of the climbs in Girona as well as some of the climbs in Andorra so I think it was just a matter of time before he sort of put everything together in a race and we see that now that he has the engine he just needs to put it all together and when he does he can win some really big bike races yeah I mean looking at the the stat the, the, how quick the peloton is moving now that the the, the, the chaotic nature quite often of the racing it's great from a commentator's point of view um that there, there's still a certain formula in racing it has to settle down ultimately to a formula stage racing uh, grand tours week-long races they all have their own um you know systems in place but things have changed enormously over the last couple of years and when you look at some of the numbers that a rider is able to put out now like go back to jay vine information is out there um, about Jay's numbers for like 28 minutes, 6.58 watts a kilo. A couple of years ago, uh, three or four years ago, that would be unheard of. Um, I mean, it clearly with the advances of um, our understanding of human physiology, diet, etc., training, etc., and then the equipment. I mean, riders are going to be moving faster. The athletes are running quicker. That they're throwing longer. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on that? But you've been around in the pro peloton for a long time now. But the way things have moved on in the last couple of years is there seems to be like there have been like almost like a, if you look at it as a graph in terms of riders going quicker, faster, whatever. The last couple of years, 
the graphs into the the, the uh the line on the graph seems to be heading skywards really, really quickly. There seems to be a massive acceleration in terms of performances. How, how, why do you think that's happening? Well, I, I think we maybe saw it start to come about at the the start of Team Sky. Yeah. And other teams started seeing what they were doing and uh, slowly more and more teams maybe quietly invested their time and money into doing some more research and it was more in the background and wasn't so much in the, the media limelight. Whereas I think now through the last couple of years, it's maybe become more public how much teams are investing in this technology and research yeah. and nutrition and everything like this. So that's kind of why it's probably exponentially taken off a little bit more because as people start talking about it a bit more, even just between riders inside the Peloton, then they bring it back to their sports directors, their coaches, they start looking into it a bit more. And then all of a sudden, instead of having just one or two teams doing it more in the background, you have 18 world tour teams, all the world tour teams doing it at the same yeah. time. And then yeah. when you have all these time and people and resources looking into sports science and everything, it obviously grows at a rapid pace. And there's obviously also competition there to, who can find out the new innovation first because then you have a, a sporting advantage. Yeah. And and your your experience of that, do you find that quite exhilarating? Are you more a traditional rider or, or are you a bit of a blend of the two? Do you really find the the scientific side of, of training uh, an endurance athlete quite fascinating? Are you somebody that's eager to learn new things or, or a how do you sit? Clearly, I mean, your trajectory—you've you've continued to get better and better and better. So clearly, you're you're embracing change, advancements in understanding. Do you find that quite uh, quite intriguing um, um, to to be a part of? Yeah, I'm someone that likes to read a lot and to learn a lot, and that was also yeah. one of the motivations to change teams is that I wanted to have new people around me with new ideas that I can bounce ideas off and to learn from them. Um, yeah. but. I do think that it's very easy to get carried away in the science and lose touch of the human side of the sport, which I think is super important. So it's really good to have a balance of the both, but yeah. the hardest thing is to be able to gather all the information together, take the small pieces out of that information that work well for you because yeah. what works for you might not work for someone else and vice versa. Yeah. So I think that's, the hardest thing to do at the moment is because there's so much information there and so many people want to throw ideas at you that have worked for other people or work inside the lab, but then might not work outside the lab or work for recreational cyclists, but don't work for professionals and vice versa. But that's the thing at the moment that is the hardest thing to manage is to what to focus your time on, what not to focus your time on. And I think a lot of the times people are looking for that 1% or that half a percent when they're missing out on the 90% thing where, yeah, I think there's still a lot more uh, performance improvement to be made from doing the basic things well, rather than looking for those small minute things that might give you that half a percent. Yeah. That's a really interesting point of view. And I think uh, a lot of conversations go back to when, when riders, athletes, um, in any sport, I guess, um, start to struggle mentally. It, quite often, it can be because of the other oh, the pressure that you're under. You know, you're you're a highly paid sports person, I guess. You, you've got results. It can be hard, and then managing everything that's expected of you, uh, and also the 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 wealth almost 
the amount of information available now, and every time I go to a bike race, I, I see some sort of new innovation out there, whether it's um, measuring your core body temperature, whether it's an app monitoring your sleep, uh, which are all great innovations because we, we've got more information to draw from, uh, make decisions on, but also it becomes even more complicated. And I also think that the human brain, although enormously capable, we all, we all have our own limits. And quite often, I guess the best way to reset is to step back and just look at the, the the things that fundamentally enable you to operate effectively as an elite athlete, and it's being happy. <laughs> it's yeah. enjoying it's enjoying it, isn't it? So it's a really, I think, increasingly as we've got more and more information available to us, it's it's even more important to remember the other things, like just why you got on the bike in the first place as a kid and ultimately wanted to turn pro. It's those things that fund. They're the big, uh, you know, that's the fundamental basis of what being a an, a, a professional athlete are all about, isn't it? Enjoying. Yeah, and I think, yeah, we have so many apps and gadgets and things that can measure certain things in our body. For example, like you said, there's the things that can measure your heart rate and your HRV and all this kind of stuff when you're asleep. But I think at the moment, we're going through an accumulation phase of getting data from these technology, technological apps and devices, and no one really knows yet what to do with that. Yeah, I think it's a similar thing with... Uh, the glucose monitors and stuff like this, that this information that we get is really cool. We get a lot of information from it, but no one really knows what to do with it yet or how to use yeah. the information to personalize it. And I think yeah. that's where people are getting lost, that they like to use all that data that everyone's getting to try and draw conclusions that no one really knows what we're drawing or the information what is not really concrete as to like, okay, if it says this, then that means you're tired. Or it says this, it means you should eat this. Yeah. There's no answer to that yet, but people are trying to draw those conclusions without listening to their body. Yeah. No, it's it's a, it's almost you want something external to give you the answers and ultimately it's going to be internal. It, it, yeah. Like I say, it's, it's a, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a really, again, a really interesting way of putting it. But just to go back to your, just to talk about this this generation that we're in, this um, the, the, the current professional cycling landscape, like the... I do love the way it's being raised. So you've got all the, 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 tech, the technology, the scientific advancements that, that teams are using. Um, but there are there's a, there's a generation of riders that come in, and although they are these ridiculously talented athletes, they often race in a way that's quite old-fashioned, which I really like. So it's almost like paradoxical. People are saying, oh, the sport is becoming, you know, everybody's just riding to power and stuff. And it's like, well, well yes and no. I mean, m- my perception of racing over the last couple of years, especially post-COVID, has yeah. been some of the most exciting, unpredictable racing I've ever seen. Um, what, what's your take on that? I think maybe the COVID period changed a little bit because when we were allowed to race our bikes again, no one really knew how long we would be able to race our bikes again. And yeah. it's also, again, it keeps coming back to that thing that it's what we do as athletes and professional cyclists is we race. All of us yeah. enjoy racing. Yeah, and I think when we got that opportunity to race again, everyone's sort of like, "Right, let's go!" Like we're totally, racing, just let's go. all in. Yeah, it's just yeah. like like, like uh, almost risk averse racing. Just let's get it. St- yeah. Let's just get yeah, yeah. And I think that maybe changed a little bit of the mentality, and also maybe there was less security within what we did as a profession because yeah. we everyone saw it taken away from us basically in a blink of an eye when COVID happened and everyone was worried that it might happen again. I think everyone realized how much they missed that competition and just trying to be the best. 
Yeah. So I think that's maybe influenced the racing a little bit, and that's just carried on through through the year now. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly been fascinating to watch over the last couple of years, and and what you've said there is pretty much what most riders have said. It's like, yeah, there was this almost when's the, the racing could stop any time so we're just going to get stuck in there's no like oh, i'm just going to train in this race everybody was racing every race not that many riders train in races anymore anyway that was the thing that that, that was part of my era really we're gonna have, we're gonna change tacks now uh jackie if you, don't, <clears> if you don't mind we're we're roughly halfway through uh the pod um now at this point I'm going to, we're going to have a quiz. Okay. Now you were born in Southport, weren't you? You then, um, you then moved to Beachmont uh, and -hmm. then from the age of 12, roughly you lived in Bendigo. So it's time Jack, for the Bendigo quiz. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Yo, yo. What's up? You're ready? Uh, uh. Let's do it. Uh, uh, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Bendigo quiz. Great jingle there from from Niall. Um, hope you enjoyed that one, mate. We've never, don't think we've ever had a Bendigo on our eighty podcasts we've had so far. So, um, how what do you think your, your Bendigo knowledge is like, uh, Jack? Probably not that good, to be honest. Uh, so yeah, I, I, we did move there um, when I was uh, changing from sort of primary school to, to high school. But to be honest, I didn't enjoy my time there too much. And I spent a lot of my time actually uh, traveling from Bendigo down to the beach to go surfing. So oh, right. we'll, we'll okay. see how I go. We'll see yeah, how we'll see go. how I go. Well, well, I'll be honest with you. Two of the questions are, uh-huh. very, lo- are very loosely Bendigo based. Um, uh-huh. And one of the questions, it's the first time ever on the podcast, I'm not going to get you too excited or too nervous, <laughs> but the first time ever on the podcast, question four is in itself a brand new feature of the podcast. Whether oh, wow. we keep it or not uh, remains to be seen. That'll be up to Niall, uh, our producer, to decide. But anyway, let, let's kick things off with, as we normally do, um, uh, with question number one. Okay, here we go. Uh, right, uh, Jack, on display uh, in Bendigo at the Golden Dragon Museum, is the world's longest Chinese imperial dragon. Did you know that? Yeah, because there's a massive uh, Chinese uh, community there and right. every single year there's a big festival. Indeed. Well, it's a, it's a Chinese dragon. Yeah, it's one of those, like a paper, it's like made yeah. out of uh, like, like, like crepe paper, isn't it? And people get in yeah. it and they, they wiggle around and stuff and it's got a, a very ornate uh, head, hasn't it? So people- I've actually just... participated in one of these. You t- Whoa, hold on a minute. We're going to have to yeah. pause the quiz. So you- you were you were inside a an imperial dragon, not inside the imperial dragon, but part of the parade where the imperial dragons uh, paraded around Bendigo. Well, that's very, very, you said you didn't have great memories of Bendigo. That sounds like it would have been a great memory, mate. So uh, <laughs> it was pretty tell good, us, actually, yeah. <laughs> to br- briefly tell us that story, then we'll c- commence with the quiz. Yeah, so basically, I forget it must be for Chinese New Year or it, it's a it's a festival uh, related around a Chinese date, and every single year it happens, and there's a big parade of these uh, paper dragons as well as many other things that happen in Bendigo, and they parade around the streets, and everyone comes out to watch, and they normally get kids involved from either local schools or local different sporting groups to participate, and I participate in one of them. Nice one. What what was your role? What did you do? Uh, we were just basically walking around in uh, costumes along the parade. Is there photo? Are there photographs of this costume? I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I think you, you're out of luck there. 
Um, I, I don't know, we might have to do some digging. Niall's already on the internet uh, digging. Having <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a dig. No, that's very cool, mate. So hopefully, back to the question itself, you'll have a good knowledge um, of this. Okay, so the world's longest uh, Imperial Dragon is is on permanent display there. I think it's been retired now, but it's still on there. It's been, been there since 2019. My question to you, though, uh, Jack, is... How long is the dragon? It's multiple choice question, so don't don't stress too much. Um, how long is the longest Chinese imperial dragon, which is uh, in the museum at Bendigo? Is it A, 80 metres, B, 90 metres, C, 100 metres, or D, 110 metres long? The bottom line is here, it's a flipping long dragon. That is a long dragon. I'm, mm. I always refer to like a 100 metre running track. I'm thinking now... 110 meters is a really long dragon. It's a lot of people fit inside. Yeah. Um, I'm going to so, go with uh, with A, I think. 80 meters. Is that your final answer, Jack? It is. Lock it in, mate. Okay, it's locked in. The correct <laughs> answer is indeed. Oh, no, it's not indeed. Sorry, it's not indeed. It's, it's, it's oh. wrong. It's, it's 100 meters. It is a 100 Jeez. meter long dragon. Mm. Um, I mean, that is long. So you were 20 meters out, mate. So um, I'll tell you what, for a bonus... Uh, bonus point: You can redeem yourself. We, I do have redeem redeem uh, options in this quiz. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you know the name of the dragon? Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly not. Clearly not. Okay, so that was a really hard question. Uh, the name of the dragon is Sun Lung. Uh, so uh, uh, so S U N L O O N G. So Sun Lung. So sorry about that. So don't worry. We've still got three more questions to go. So question number two: Bendigo wasn't called Bendigo until 1891. But what was the city's previous name between the dates 1853 and 1891? And again, multiple choice here. So uh, the, the name that Bendigo had before it was called Bendigo uh, until 1891. Was it A, Calder, B, Kennington, C, Sandhurst, D, Eaglehawk? Wow. There, yeah. Well, all, all those names are suburbs of Bendigo now, but I have no idea what it was called before, uh, before whatever the date was. I'm just going to go with uh, B. You're going to be Kennington. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. It's incorrect. It was Sandhurst. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Oh, yeah. oh, no, yeah. Sandhurst, it was called between 1853 and 1891, just at the time of the gold rush, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was called Sandhurst. Um, and then from 1891, it was called Bendigo, mate. So, um, yeah, um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to toss up your score, mate, so far. Zero, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yep. mate. Uh, but <laughs> that was a bit cruel. That was cruel. Yeah. I apologize, mate. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Question number three. Um, now we're moving away from Bendigo, Australia and heading towards the UK, but keeping it Bendigo themed. Right. Um, through my research that I did this morning, um, I got up early, especially um, yeah, jet lag. Did some research. Lag, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, there is one UK restaurant with the name Bendigo in it, um, and it happens to be in Nottingham, just up the road. So I, I could go there today and visit it and give you a review if you wanted. I won't right. do that, but I've got other things to do. But um, what is the full name of the only UK restaurant with the name Bendigo in it? And this is going to be guest based, of course, but it's a bit right. of fun. Okay, so is it and uh, is it A Bendigo a go-go, B Bendigo lounge, C Bendigo bar and grill, grill, 
or D, Bendigo Jazz and Cocktails. <laughs> now, oh, wow. what I'm going to do here, I'm going to, very much like on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I'm going yeah. to allow you to eliminate a 50-50. I can, you can, I, if you want to choose 50-50, I can take two answers away to leave you with like a 50% chance. Um, so, is it A, B, C or D? Bendigo Go-Go, Bendigo Lounge, Bendigo Bar and Grill, Bendigo Jazz and Cocktails. But I can happily take away two of those and leave you with two, two, two answers. I feel, like so, I feel so A, if it's not Bendigo or Go-Go, it should be because that's such a catchy, good name. Yeah. So I, quite... I'd almost just want to go straight up with that because I feel so that's the catchiest name out of all four options. And if I was to name a business, I'd want it to be something that people can remember and have fun saying. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. So you're going to go with A? Yeah. Okay, mate. It's incorrect. It's B, the Bendigo oh. Lounge. I invented Bendigo a go-go, uh, but I think uh, maybe we should go into business together um, in the future, mate, when we've retired from this malarkey and open a bar in Bendigo called Bendigo a go-go, because it's quite a good name, isn't it? Let's be yeah. honest. B- Bendigo yeah. Lounge is very unoriginal and just I know. generic. I might, I might visit and say, look, I've been, yeah. I've been having, I've been having a word with Jack Haig, a resident of Bendigo. You know, he was third in the Vuelta and all round lovely lad. Uh, we reckon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'll maybe do that in the future. Um, but now I'm quite intrigued to go and see what it's like in the Bendigo lounge. <laughs> right. Okay. You still got nothing right. <laughs> so, thanks. Yep. So now Niall is going to have to step in here. Niall, can we have you uh, on the pod briefly, mate? Yeah. Can you hear the cherry picker outside? No, uh, no, I can't. Oh, okay, you got can't. Right, let's keep going. Okay, so we've got a new feature, Niall. It's basically, well, uh, listen, listening to this one, uh, I haven't actually told Niall about this. We, <laughs> you're going to have thirty seconds to do this. Uh, do you have a piece of, do you have a piece of paper and a pen nearby? No, but I can get one if it's. Essential. If you get one, and what we'll do, we'll insert some lift music now, right. uh, and and in the interim, I'll ask Niall. Niall, could you do us a thirty-second countdown? Uh, <laughs> I can put one in and post. Yes, if you yeah. could do that, we can lay it over the top. And what I'll do, I'll have a stopwatch, and I'll and I'll, I'll, I'll basically play that in the background and do like a fifteen second. You've got five seconds to go, kind of like that's nice and easy. Let's do. All that right, again. I've got a napkin and a permanent marker. Is that going to work? Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I th- yeah. I mean, that, that should be fine. I should have told you earlier to get a pen, but no, I'm sure it'd be fine. I'm sure it'd be fine. So basically, what I'd like you to do, uh, yeah. you've got thirty seconds to do this. Um, is to write down as many words as you can from the word Bendigo, okay? Now, my oh. wife earlier today, we did a test. So my wife, Holly, managed to get in 30 seconds seven words from Bendigo, and we've since found another six, okay? So if you get seven words, I'm going to give you 10 points, okay? And if you All get right. above, we're just going to work out a scale. But if you get, we'll, we'll work it out. Um, we'll give you, a, actually, we're going to give you a point per word, Okay, so you could actually end up getting uh, full marks. So, have, have you got that? Yep. So, as many words as you can from Bendigo, and we're going to start from now. And, and as you do them, you can shout them out as well. Here we go. Go. B. Yep. End. Yep. Go. Yep. Bend. Yep. Uh... 15 seconds, mate. Wow. Uh, dog? Yep. Uh, uh, Five seconds. Dingo? 
dingo. Nice yeah. one. That's <laughs> very Australian. So we're going to stop. We're going to stop it there, mate. So you've got. We got six. So can you just tell me number four? I, I heard it, but I didn't. I couldn't quite write it down. So you've got B, end, go, dog, and dingo. That's an absolute crack. And di- bend. Bend. So that's one, two, three, four, five. That's six, right, mate? So Holly got seven. You've got six. That's six points in the bag. Well done, Squires. Have a wow. round of applause. I'm curious now. What, what what did I miss? So, I mean, there might be more. I mean, we've got, so Holly got B, the same as you. Uh, bend, same as you. Go, which she got. She got din, dine, oh, yeah. um, ah. end. You got dingo, which we didn't get. She also got node, gone, bone, done, dong, and binge. So she's good with words. Oh, wow. Uh, Yes. And that took her just another (laughs) 15, 20 seconds. So it's, yeah, it's one of her specialities. But six points means that you've got a total, well, you've got 150% out of 100%. Well done, Jack Haig. (laughs) Oh, well done, mate. I hope we didn't mind a little bit of a brain teaser. So uh, no, well, it's that, not. It's, you know. That's a good section. I don't mind that one actually. Yeah, we might use that again. Um, we shall see. We might have it as a completely uh, separate feature, mate. But um, okay, let's go. Let's go back in time, um, Jack. I mean, we talked about the present day, what you've been up to, how you're recovering. But what are your um, earliest memories of, of actually riding a bike, and how, and how ultimately did you get into this uh, this malarkey? <laughs> um. So. We always had bikes in the family, but it was more of just a way of transport than a sporting thing. So, like, my mom always had a bike that she would ride to and from the supermarket or we'd use it going to and from school, but it was never really seen as a, a sporting thing. So, I uh, always had a bike and I grew up riding a bike. So, my earliest memory is probably riding, like, a 12-inch or 14-inch little BMX bike around. Um, then... The sporting side of cycling sort of came in when we actually moved to Bendigo because okay. uh, we moved to a new town and my parents were looking for things for me and my sister to do to get more integrated into the community. And there was a mountain bike club in Bendigo. Okay. So maybe around age 14, I went to the one of the events that the mountain bike club did and I did a mountain bike race. So that was the first sort of uh go in competition um but i never really took it that seriously but i always used a bike so i always rode to school with my bike i rode to football practice with my bike i rode to cricket practice with my bike friends houses etc so uh and i also uh rode uh bmx bikes at like skate park and stuff with friends when i was at school so sure I was always interested but not, not really interested in road cycling or even mountain biking when i was uh super young and then uh, I slowly got into more mountain bike racing as I got a little bit older. So maybe around 16, 17, we started traveling a little bit to do some smaller mountain bike races. One is just yeah. like a thing to do on the weekend as a family. Sure. Um, and then I did a couple mountain bike national rounds that we had in Australia that okay. were in Victoria. So that were close by when I was maybe my first year junior so i think that's 16 or 17 years old yeah. uh but again never really took it very seriously i was actually more interested in surfing i loved surfing when i was a kid and i'd spend all my summer and stuff surfing right and uh 
Yeah, go on. No, 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 no. I was saying, were you, did you compete as a surfer? No, just, uh, no, just, for, just fun. for fun. Yeah, just yeah. for fun. I love being at the beach and love being in the water and, and surfing. So um, I just did it as a recreational thing. And then when I was in my second year junior, we did, again, a couple of small national rounds. Um, but, again, not very serious. But the Mountain Bike Australia, they were selecting a long list of athletes that could go potentially to world championships at the end of that year. And I think they sure. selected either 10 or 11 athletes. And okay. I was the last one selected. Wow. And okay. so this happened maybe around February in Australia, right. so the end of the summer. So we had some – the mountain bike rounds were during December and January, February. And then at the end of that, uh, I got the phone call. I said, oh, look, you're going to be selected for this long list if you want to be part of it. And the first thing that we did was we did a two-week trip during the Easter school holidays to New Zealand. Oh, right. As, okay. As a group. So we went to New Zealand for roughly two weeks. We went there with road bikes and mountain bikes. We actually stayed in Rotorua, which is a really famous town in the North Island of New Zealand for mountain biking. And we basically spent okay. two weeks just riding mountain bikes around and we did a three or four day stage uh, road race there. Yeah. And I remember coming home from this thinking like, oh, that was pretty cool. Like I got to go hang out with some new friends and we just rode bikes basically for two weeks and it was pretty sweet. Yeah. And then I rode my bike to school for the first time after this trip. And I remember riding to school and being like, wow, this is, this is easier than it was before. And it was basically because I'd been training for two weeks. I, I, I never rode my bike more than like riding to and from school. Or I never did. So I remember riding to school and I was like, oh, it's huh, always way easier now. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> I've, ne- I've never heard anybody say, you know, that they, they realized – the first time they realized that the, the effect of training was just yeah. riding to school. That's really, really cool. <laughs> uh, and yeah, basically I was, I think that must've been, I was halfway through my last year of school and yeah. we did came back from this trip and then I was, oh, I was pretty cool. And I ended up uh, getting a coach and I thought, right, I'm going to try and put everything into this and try and make it to uh, world championships at the end of the year. So, started training throughout the year and I went from being one of the last people selected for this 10 or 11 man long list and to being one of the people that was selected of the, I think maybe four or five of us went to Europe in around September to do world championships. And we did some racing in Switzerland and we did like a national Swiss uh, mountain bike round. Uh, okay. We did uh, the Val de Sol World Cup, which is actually going to happen this weekend, I think. We'll be the nice. last round of this year's World Cup series. Yeah. And then we did world championships and I did that trip and I came back and I was like, Oh, that was pretty fun. Actually. Like I got to yeah. go to Europe. Like my dad had never really traveled outside of Australia, let alone to Europe. And I got sure. to go to Europe this thing. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And I, I never really enjoyed school. So, uh, I finished my year of uh, school and applied for university. But I said to myself, like, I don't really know what I want to do at university. So I'll give myself until, age 23 and at that point you're eligible to go back to university in australia as what they class as a mature age student so they take into account more of what you did in that time away rather than just the score that you got at the end of your high school to get into a university degree okay so i said to myself like i'll i don't know what i'll do maybe i'll be a professional cyclist maybe i'll figure something else out in life but until i'm 23 i'll decide whether i go back to university or not 
Right. And uh, then I worked the summer, so the end of my high school year, to save up some money. And I traveled to America on my own, basically. And I went backpacking around America with my mountain bike, racing some US national mountain bike rounds before traveling to Europe and doing world championships again. That's very cool. So you were like self that's, that's really cool having the, not so much the presence of mind, but the um, the kind of spirit and the, the, the sense of adventure to go and do that. That's very cool. That must have been a, that must have had a fundamental effect on you doing something yeah. like that. Yeah. The four months I spent in America. So yeah, I was 18 at the time. I basically left Australia with a backpack and a bike box, flew to Salt Lake City. Yeah. And I only had accommodation for the first week and a half with friends of friends that I'd never met before in my entire life. Right. And then from then on, I basically backpacked and sort of hitchhiked my way around uh, America trying to race these mountain bike rounds. Um, wow. That's, so and, you, you, you're, you're like, an, not be funny, you're like one of, an, 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 one of the original adventurers. Or, yeah, that, sounds, that sounds amazing. It was, it was an experience. There was a yeah. very uh, pivotal point in that trip where I was spending basically three and a bit weeks living in Vancouver. And yeah. basically it was a friend from Australia. He was living in Vancouver, but he wasn't in his apartment. So I moved there. No idea really where I was, how I was going to live for the next three weeks. And within the first sort of week of living there, and that was before sort of smartphones and data roaming and stuff like this. I was yeah. out riding my mountain bike and I sort of said, oh, I'll do an hour and a half in this direction, turn around and an hour and a half home again to make the three hours. Yeah, And uh, basically at the furthest point from home, I got hit by a car and oh, broke my wheel on my bike, but I had no idea where I lived. So, oh my God. When, oh no. when, when I tried to explain to the driver how to get to my place, I had no idea how to explain to get there. And basically, he took me to a bus station, gave me like 50 bucks and said, oh, no, like, I don't know what to do. And then I basically yeah. took uh, a bus to somewhere that I kind of recognized where I was. And I started walking around with my bike that had a broken wheel to try and recognize where I lived. Oh or my where God. I was staying mate. at the moment. And I was pretty close to buying a plane ticket home then. Flipping heck. Oh, oh mate. <laughs> but so, it was it was one of the best things I probably ever did. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, totally out of your comfort zone, but but sorting it out in the end. Yeah, I, um, I basically... It's, 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 I guess that's the, not the moral of the story, but like being thrown into the, properly into the deep end and, and right, and it, it kind of tests your mental resilience, yeah. something like that, doesn't it? And I think it taught me that no one will help you get to where you want to go as much as you'll help yeah. yourself get there. And yeah, that if sure. you really okay. want something, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And you, so, yeah. Yeah. And that, that was probably the biggest thing that I learned from that. And that was like, right, if, if you want this and you want to be a professional cyclist, no one is going to help you do it because basically to finish off that, that story, I flew to uh, Europe to do uh, a World Cup and the World Championships at the end of the year. But again, I stayed at some friends of a friends in Germany who owned a really big specialized bike store. And when we were there, was around the Eurobike bike show. Okay. And sure. they said, oh, you want to come to Eurobike just to walk around and stuff? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I went and basically I walked around all of the Eurobike stand and went to every single manufacturer that I knew had a mountain bike team. And I just plain asked them whoever the guy was standing at the stand, whether I could 
somehow get a contract to ride mountain bikes next year in Europe. And I think everyone just looked at me like, what is this 18-year-old Australian kid <laughs> doing? Bold as brass. Wow, man, that's belief. In Germany at Eurobike asking <laughs> for us for a contract to ride mountain bikes next year. Anyway, it never, nothing ever eventuated from that. Now I'm back to Australia. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was waiting for like, yeah, and they signed me up on the whim. But like, no, it didn't work. I, 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 I love that. Um, it's not barefaced cheek. It's just why not? If you don't yeah. ask, you don't get. If you don't try, you're never going to achieve. Exactly. And, and that's clearly what, what a wonderful, what, what a wonderful. Well, clearly you've just learned a lot. And, and clearly that, that spirit just um, – and that way of existing, that way of being, is is obviously car- carried you well, mate, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. to be perfectly honest with you, and it's uh, I think it's something a lot of youngsters could could maybe learn from as well. Yeah. And when I think you know, we all support, of course, is massively important. You know, the yes. best support you have, especially you know, from your team, from your family, from the people that love you the most, the people that care. Support is 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 your anchor. But ultimately, in terms of making decisions and and moving forward, it's, it's you, isn't it? And uh, and that's that's one thing that people can't lose sight of. It's just it's it's, it's you're self propelled. Yeah, it's I, I think that it only works with certain personalities to go the way that I went. Because I think if everyone had to go through the same thing, you would end up with less people where they are now. And I think the support system that's there helps more people achieve what they want to achieve. But I think the way that I got here helped build me as a person and my personality, my resilience, uh, yeah, was shaped through that process. Okay. Well, well, Jack, we're coming to, it's, it's been, I mean, what a nice way actually to, to wrap up the, the podcast. I'm surprised actually that, um, our random question generator hasn't kicked off. I don't know if I've plugged it in. Normally <laughs> I'll plug it in and I've forgotten. But what I do have written down is a, um, a couple of very quick fire questions to wrap this one up, if you don't mind. Um, one's out of morbid fascination, and it's this one. Have you ever had in your life a really scary incident or uh, situation with a, a reptile or an arachnid in Australia? Uh, no, not really, actually. I, I think because where I grew up in Bendigo, uh, in uh, Beachmont before we moved to Bendigo was kind of in a really big national park. So we kind of, and my dad was a national park ranger. So we kind of grew up around sort of snakes and reptiles and this kind of stuff. So we never really, we got very comfortable being around them. So I never really had right. too much of a scary experience, but to go back to my trip to America, I did see a massive brown bear on the side of the road when I was riding down a hill. And that was one of the coolest, but probably more scary things I've seen on the bike. Flipping. What did, did you get? I can't, did you just, um, how far away did you get to so it? So he was maybe, or he or she was maybe a meter and a half, two meters off the road as I was descending quite fast down the road and I saw it. And then I stopped maybe 200 meters past him and turned just, around and just, just sort of watched him. And he just crossed the road and went up into the forest. And it was a pretty, pretty cool experience to see such a big, powerful animal in life in real life just in its habitat <laughs> yeah i mean lucky you weren't climbing the hill yeah flipping it mate um, maybe yeah. that's one of those that that could have been a pivotal moment in your life as well actually <laughs> you're just you're, just your your direction of travel on that yeah. particular day um and another quick one um this is a bit weird, but I, I, I don't know why I thought of it. Again, probably to do with the jet lag. Um, if you were to cook, if, if you were to cook me a meal, yeah. um, knowing what you know about me, it's probably very little um, yeah. uh, or a bit um, multiplied by your ability as a cook. Mm-hmm. What would it be? Well, so if I was pop, if I was popping around tonight for oh Matt's coming around for a meal and that's oh, for weird. In the, for yeah, for dinner. Yeah, what would you cook me? 
oh mate, we have a barbecue out in the terrace in my big Weber. Oh, oh nice. Is that? What, oh, that's, that sounds great. I'm mean, just just a big Barbie. Yeah, we, we'd uh, go to the local butcher here in Andorra. We'd get a really big steak from an Andorran cow, local. We'd right. uh, probably have a couple of beers and uh, just cook the massive steak on the, the Weber outside and just sit and stare at the, the sky. Oh, what that sounds amazing. That sounds absolutely I'm, – I'm actually salivating right now. Um, and looking at the weather outside in Derbyshire, it's, it, 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 I might pop round to the local supermarket and buy one of those tiny little foil barbecue disposable ones and put, and put, put some sausages and bacon on, mate, and then I'll send you a photo. I'll right. be the nearest I can get to it. I, I tell you what, I'm just going to just go over to the random question generator and just see if I can plug it in. Just bear with me one second, mate. Hold on. Random question alert. Oh, it's working. We've got one. It is time for a random question. Okay. Um, what I, it's my mistake. Actually, I got a text from the producer. And they said, Matt, we, we, you're contracted to have a random question. So that I, I went and plugged <laughs> it in. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, this is the question. Never seen it before in my life. And this will wrap up the podcast. Okay, Jack, you arrive home after a night out, but realize you've forgotten your keys. How do you gain entry to your premises? So it can be your Andorran premises. So yeah. uh, no keys, nobody's in. Um, how are you going to get in, mate? Well, I hope I have my phone because we've got this fancy system where we can open the garage door with your phone and the app, so it wouldn't be so hard. So I think that kind of ruins your question. But uh... <laughs> it, does, it, does, it does a bit, actually, yeah. <laughs> so you've, you've lost your phone, you've lost right, your I've keys. Lost my phone, my keys. <laughs> wow, I'm... I'm pretty screwed, actually, because being here, all the windows and stuff are like triple glazed windows because it gets really cold in the winter, so I don't even think I could break a window to get in. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I'd be pretty screwed, mate, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think triple glazing, you are. I mean, you'd have to be exceptionally violent to a window, wouldn't you? Like, and, you, and if- you'd need to get a massive rock or something to go through it because it's not like a single plain glass window. You just like poke your finger through it. Yeah. Oh, mate. So basically, the, the answer to that question, you'll have to go and stay at somebody else's house. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or sleep yeah. rough till somebody came home. Um, yeah. Oh, mate. Um, so not the greatest ever answer, but again, a testament perhaps to the security of your new gaff, mate, or the place yeah, that's, uh, yeah, of, of your house, which is a nice way to win it. If I just said, oh, the back door's always open, I'd just climb the fence and go through my back door because then everyone would know that it's open. Yeah, that we might get some um, yeah ne'er do wells um, <laughs> or, or, uh, coming uh, popping around. So let, let's not end on a bad note. And um, so yeah, your place is pretty secure, which is which is great. Anyway, um, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. This 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 hour or so has whizzed by. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We could have talked easily for another couple, another hour or so, mate. But um, I think first and foremost, thanks for coming on the pod. Secondly, can't wait to see you back in the peloton, mate. Because I know you'll be back better than ever. Um, but I think it's just about making sure it's everything's right for you, mate. But um, just yeah, take care of yourself and thank you very much indeed, mate. Thanks again for having me, and I th- hope uh, everyone enjoyed our conversation. What a lovely lad. I really enjoyed that chat with Jack and I hope the doctor has good news for him ahead of the weekend. And I guess we'll all find out soon. Fingers crossed for you, mate. Thanks as ever to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, follow and rate the pod and maybe give it a little review if you feel like it. And... 
why not recommend it to a hitchhiking mountain biker with a bent front wheel wandering the streets of Vancouver in search of his temporary residence. Now, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, please do. Our email address is podcast at sigmasports.com or you can leave a message or a voice note on our WhatsApp burner phone number, which is plus four four triple seven eight three two three two six eight. And finally, a massive thanks again to Jack for joining us on the podcast today. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. 